Welcome to the Avance Podcast. I'm Dan. And I'm Nick. How's it going, man? I'm, I'm again, <laughs> just another day closer to death. But, uh, you know, so... You that know, great, huh? I just, great. It's a new year, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I had noticed. The riding weather's been on your side. I have been trying to do as much of that as I can. Um, I'm taking advantage of the fact that I'm still fat, so I'm, I stay warmer. <laughs> but um, it's not working as much. But I've uh, been doing a little bit of that. Well, uh, there's that. I was actually trying to get out. It didn't happen. It's probably not going to happen, but I'm trying to be a bigger part of like the trail maintenance. Like there's a, they do stuff where they maintain yeah. the trails at Duthie and stuff like that. And I was trying to get out to one of those today and it just didn't happen. So I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to kind of get back a little bit here and there. Yeah. So, I mean, I give so much, so it's just, you know, yeah, I was going to ask you about trail maintenance this weekend. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I wanted to head up uh, one of the, some of the off-road stuff's opening up. I was going nice. to grab some chainsaws and I'll open one of those up if you're okay. interested. Yeah, I yeah, could, be, I could be interested. Anyway. Yeah. I'll be interested, yes. Hey, uh, speaking of trail clearing, uh, <laughs> one of the things we need to do to do that is bring a chainsaw. And then we have we have batteries, but uh, a lot of us have two-stroke chainsaws. Pretty popular thing. I know they're banned, getting banned in some areas, but those of us who go off-road, uh, the bat- if, as long as the battery stuff keeps up and they do work great, nothing wrong with yeah. that. Uh, it's time for technology to move on. That's great. But it made me think of something kind of obscure. And that is uh, fouled plugs, fouled spark plugs. Yes, okay. It's really a thing most of us don't think about anymore. Those of us who, those of us who grew up riding, uh, riding dirt bikes, two strokes especially. Well, you but can't get to them. I mean, I'm, I'm talking in general in cars and stuff like that. Yeah, it's harder to get. You to couldn't them. get to them if and you wanted it's to. It's yeah. rarely a problem anymore with yeah. fuel injection or anything like that. But it came to my attention as I was talking about it with someone. They're like, "What is a fouled plug?" <laughs> and I was like. It's a plug that went foul. Yeah. Yeah. It starts screaming at you. and A, cor- you. a corn you, belt's a belt of you, corn, too. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you start you start cursing at it. A foul plug just means that a substance is built up on the plug that has blocked it from firing, from okay. con- conducting its spark. And for that, um, you can have fuel fouling, which is too much fuel in there, which usually just means you're running too rich. You can have oil fouling, whereas your mixture is too rich and the oil is building up on the plug. Which or is going to be on a two-stroke, right? Yeah. Or okay. if you're not perfectly jetted or you switch elevation, sometimes that oil, you're running your ratio might be a little off for sea level and it might be because you're going to be running high and then you go down low anyway these are just things to think about but that's all fouling is is it's just a buildup of anything on the plug is and that something that could happen in a gtr when you go from sea level and you have a two it can you know oh, okay i still didn't i oddly <laughs> enough in spite of shooting a lot of fire out the exhaust i did not foul the plugs on that trip fair enough yeah but uh the rx7 though it was like a weekly occurrence yes <laughs> so that's that. Anyway. That's, that's it. Just comes with extra spark plugs. Well, we. I mean, th- when you talk about the bikes, we. I, I carry an extra plug with me all the time on the monkey and on the big bike. So yeah, more likely it happened on the big bike than the monkey. But yeah. um. But yeah, it's just if you have a two-stroke chainsaw, a two-stroke weed whacker, a two-stroke. I'd uh, rather it happen on the monkey because I can get to the one on the monkey. Right. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Lawnmower carry an extra plug and yeah. um. Can you reuse a foul plug? Typically, no. If you fuel foul a plug, sometimes you can literally just burn off extra fuel and run it. I've done it before, but if you oil foul it and you soak it, or if you um, if you do really bad, you get it too hot, and you build that carbon build up on the plug, typically, no. You just, just need to put a new, it. Yeah, you need yeah, to put okay. in a new plug. There's not really much saving it. And yeah, I mean, you can go through and sometimes sandpaper them. I've, I've done it out in the trail when I've had to back get in the day. Gap key. Yeah, yeah you can get your yeah. gap key. But yeah, check your gap, check your condition. It's usually, in, we always used to say when people come in, oh, I keep fouling plugs. I'm like, that's indicative of a problem. That does not mean you just need a bunch of new spark plugs. It's usually yeah. an, an indicator of a problem in tuning. So yeah. keep that in mind as well. Uh, again, not a very applicable thing, but a very common thing for those of us with two-stroke anything. Yeah. And some carbureted vehicles, things like that, it happens. So. Anyway, the more you know. Yeah, that's our Carter Automotive Group tip of the week. And if you have any modern Subaru, you should never have to worry about that.
Anyway. You um, say that, but now it's jinxed. Yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> now you're so, jinxed. Yeah. We have a very exciting guest this week. We've been really excited to talk to. We ran into Felix Holst back in the... Uh, what is it? Classics on the Green? Yes. Car show at Woodenville yeah. where there was a charity car for Seattle Children's Hospital. Children's Hospital in California as well, I believe. Yep. Those proceeds went to that did really well with our friends at Bring a Trailer. Felix is an artist, a former VP at uh, Hot Wheels, which uh, I'll try. Nick hopefully will not fangirl out the whole <laughs> yeah, episode I'm, about I'm that. I'm going to try not to talk about that too much, but yeah. Because we're pretty so. sure we are. <laughs> you single-handedly put Felix's child through college. I might have. There's, there's, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Felix. We are really excited to have you here man hey guys it's good to be here and if you if you've been an avance member long enough you've seen the article that we did with well, not we <laughs> avance carl magazine did. carl did and the avance magazine so welcome to the show uh how are you i'm good you're good i'm good man i'm like i'm i'm really good i'm really good i've been better than i've been for years which is which is a good place to be you know um awesome i'm excited man I'm, i this is after like everybody's been through hell over the past few years my story was certainly interesting alongside the pandemic and I'm 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 ready for a new year like resolution that's actually like no man I can make this happen rather than like let's see what shit hits the fan this year last year was yeah. shit can't be any better this year <laughs> thought I was in charge of my goals until somebody told me to stay home yeah, for two years you know, yep. you know I understand that yep. I do I understand that so I mean uh, by your accent I can tell you're definitely Australian and uh, probably <laughs> grew up there yeah, uh, no <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, that's still Newcastle the, upon Tyne. New, that's not a yeah. not a name we hear very much in the states. No, I mean like people people ask me how to pronounce it and all sorts of stuff. And like, what what's a Tyne? You know, what's upon a Tyne? Once upon a Tyne, <laughs> it's a it river. Works. It's a river, and Newcastle yeah. is an important city and was for a long time. Um, but birthplace of the railways is probably the most impressive statement about Newcastle. But um, it's a, a no, you know north the most northerly English city. Um, Hadrian's Wall, the Roman Wall, runs right through Newcastle. So that's where the Roman Empire ran out of steam, basically. Um, that's <laughs> well, where, I see it as they stopped there because they, they couldn't do any better. Newcastle was the best. That was it. They, they put the wall that, there. That's it. Yeah. They, found, they found Nirvana once they'd kind of yeah, crossed Europe. There you go. Yeah, packed, absolutely. Packed, packed their way through the Druids and got, them, and, 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 and got themselves to the north of England, found Newcastle, and went, this is it, man. You know, This is where you want to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going sure. to yeah. squat here until the Vikings come and kick our ass. <laughs> so how did you how did you end up here kind of were you all the, the stereotypical car kid i mean as yeah, growing up yeah i mean i was like it's funny that I've, I've met some people since who are more brain dead than me um and and, and that would have that probably wouldn't have happened if i had moved to, to los angeles but um yeah i was like you know i was that i my first word was tractor my second word was car i think my third word was mom you know, so like I, uh, I, I, my dad's, a, my dad's into cars. It was always interesting. You know, we did have like when I was born, we didn't have much money. My parents were very young, but there was always something interesting. My dad had raced like Mini Coopers and Ford Anglias in the '60s as a student, and so and and he worked on the rigs. And so the, the story goes that he used to bring all these magazines back from the oil rigs. He was one of the first guys to work in the North Sea um, when the North Sea oil field was developed. And back then, even if you were just what they called a roustabout, which was just a laborer. You were Trek like royalty, and you had everything you could possibly need. And so we, you know, I got to hear about the latest films from America, and and and, and I got the latest car magazines brought back, and a lot of those were American. And so I got into kind of hot rods and American culture really quite early, like in the seventies, before Hot Wheels was available in the UK. I was into hot rods, and then you know, so I, I don't, you know, I used to, I used to love the movies. I, I, my dad had watched like you know, we only had four, like well, when I was a kid, three TV channels, the BBC two. 
would often show old American like road movies in the middle of the night, late at night. And I would sit on my dad's knee when I was a kid watching like Vanishing Point, um, Gone in 60 Seconds. And then it was just an obsession from a very early age. And then through my teens, I was into kind of skate culture and graffiti culture really quite early on. Well, that certainly didn't pay off for you in your art- artistic career at all. No, I mean, you can see, you can see, so like, I've, I've told this story quite a few times over the past couple of years, but really, without knowing it, I always wanted to come to California. California played a major part in my childhood in terms of the, the images that I saw that I dreamed of. And when I started with Mattel as a, as a graduate, I didn't really, you know, I, if you, you could tell me head office was in Los Angeles, but if you hadn't shown me a map, I wouldn't have known where Los Angeles was. You know, I wasn't really aware of like, you know, where's, where really is it California in, in relation to everything else? Everything, I just thought that's just what America was like, you know. Oh. Interesting. Because <laughs> How you, wrong you, I was. I was going to say, man, it's cold today. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> But you, I mean, and to, to touch on this, and, I, and again, I do not want to go over, overboard on this because I could fanboy out, but you started with Hot Wheels in the UK, correct? Yeah, I am. Um, so I wanted, to be, I wanted to be a car designer. I, music and cars were my two really big loves with, with kind of fashion sitting in the middle of all of that as well. I, I come from, I come at car culture very, very definitely from a kind of fashion and culture and, 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 and pop culture side rather than a motorsport side. I always wanted to be a car designer, um, and I studied industrial design, graduated in 96 with a degree in industrial design, and was going to go to the RCA in London to do a master's in car design, and I needed a kind of interim job, and was finding it very difficult to find a job, and uh, as as a last-ditch attempt, I replied to this literally, you know, of course, this is like pre-internet, so all of the jobs were listed in actual kind of magazines and and trade papers, and I, I replied to a job for Hot Wheels UK, temp a six-month temp position, Hot Wheels UK. All it was was like a one-liner with a phone number like and, and an address to send a resume to. So I did. And, you know, it was probably the longest and hardest three-stage interview process for a, for a six-month temp position that's ever, been, that's ever been laid out. But, you know, I got the job and within about four weeks realized that, you know, I was – I'd never thought about toy design and I realized that I was very, very good at it. And – where I came from on the kind of culture side of cars meant that I could sit and sketch a muscle car or a Ferrari or a hatchback, like without, with my eyes closed, you know, I wasn't just a kid who sat and drew supercars all day. I could draw a 32 Ford perfectly if you wanted with my eyes closed. And so that fit with Hot Wheels. And then with a genuine, I realized that I hadn't really lost touch with being that kid lying on my belly in the bedroom on the carpet playing with toys, you know? Um, so the dreaming side of things of, of, of designing, like, toy garages and play sets and all the accessories came very naturally to me. So I, I didn't look back. So this was like 97 and I just never looked back, you know, within a month I'd been to Milan and Los Angeles as a, as a kind of kid basically. And within about six weeks, they said, look, man, we know this was supposed to be a six month temp contract, but we want to keep you on full time. And then I just very rapidly like moved. I, I was given a golden opportunity to travel the world and, and really like, run the entire development process from blank sheet concept all the way through to sitting down with manufacturing engineers in China to make sure that the product integrity was maintained. And I just did that for three years around the world constantly, you know, design something, get it approved, go to China, get it made, start again. That was kind of the the golden age of Hot Wheels too, at least like starting kind of in the the mid eighties when the cartoon craze came up and then all the way through the the nineties and even to now, like Hot Wheels is sort of the gold standard for 
like designing fun because as everything blends together, Hot Wheels can still play with the cool stuff. Yeah, it was it was it was good. It was it was good times then because there was a lot of money in it. You know, there was a lot of like they hadn't Hot Wheels at the time was nowhere near the size of Barbie, so it was still it wasn't a huge brand. It was maybe worth I don't know what it was worth two hundred million a year, which in 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 global brand sizes is not very big. But as a result, they haven't really honed it to a fine art yet. And so in the in the kind of like when I joined and I hadn't really looked at Hot Wheels since I was a kid. And I was a Hot Wheels kid. I remember the first time I ever saw Hot Wheels on the peg in a, in a, in a local department store when I was about, I must have been about eight years old, seven years old. And I was just like, holy shit, these people get me, right? Um, <laughs> that was the end of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah. And then. And and so and so the product the product was really good because they were spending a lot there was a lot of money in the product and we we figured out how to eke the very last ounce of plastic out of everything and and the cars were still they were still making a lot of double diecast cars back then where there would be metal chassis metal bodies multi part cars yeah. nobody was really monitoring how much things were putting into the cars and so some of the models that I managed to like grab from the from the US team back then are still they're still the old like. I sold my collection when I left when I left Mattel, just because it was massive and worth a lot of money. And so those two <laughs> things, like, sorry, I'll cash it in and put it into a car, a real car. But some of the stuff that I kept was the stuff that I secured when I was like when I started my career back then, because it was just such interesting stuff. Um, but then the flip side was when I actually moved out here, um, and I eventually took the brand, but I, I influenced the brand. I, I took Matchbox when I first moved out here. Um, that was I was given Matchbox to see if nobody cared about it. It was nearly dead, and it, they were doing all sorts of bizarre, like kiddie character cars and stuff. And so, for the first couple of years, we reinvented Matchbox, but we 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 figured a lot of stuff out on how how to up the design process and improve the design process. Even though they wanted us, the, the company wanted us to cut back on the cost of the product, we applied a lot of innovation in the way that we designed the cars to make them better than they'd ever been. But at the same time. And it was on my visa. This is funny, man. It was on my visa paperwork. Why do you, why do you want to bring this guy across the manager design group in the US? And they were like, well, we need a Felix is a, a global car culture expert. Those words were written on my visa paperwork. And so this is why we need someone from Europe and not an, not an American. And when I turned up, the, the brand was very, very, it was very soaked in its, you know, Larry Wood was was still still had a desk, was still coming in at the every you know, Larry Wood's like the, 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 the they know Larry is like Mr. Hot Wheels, right? He's the guy who yes. he's he, yeah. he wasn't the originator, but he started in about sixty nine or seventy and he stayed with the brand. All the other greats like Harry Bradley and Ira Guilford, they were only there for a year or two years. Larry was the guy who stuck with it through hard times and good times. But when I turned up, it was basically I used to jokingly call it Larry's gang, right? There was all this Everybody was like a gray beard and they were still, they were still <laughs> doing muscle cars and hot rods predominantly. And then, and Fast and the Furious had just come out and the whole, the whole brand was in like a total like panic about like, how do we deal with this? We don't understand. There was a couple of, there was a couple of young lads in there who got it right. But mainly it was this old fashioned brand with an old fashioned management team trying to wrestle with this like phenomenon that had happened that's called Fast and the Furious. And like, everybody was like, how do we do Kuna cars, Tuna cars? And the over time, my role became how do we gradually direct the brand to become a more global brand? And so I took the I moved up through the ranks pretty quick. Took the brand over as vice president in at the end of two thousand nine, um, 
and we very very quickly put strategies in place to kind of to to to, to grow the brand from being a kind of fairly flatlining brand at the time about the group, I think, the Hot Wheels and Matchbox were, were about six hundred million a year, which at the site again, Barbie was way past a billion, um, and it was flatlining. It was only growing by about three percent a year, and so we, me and my marketing partner, who was a British guy, Simon, we very very rapidly put like looked at it and said, "Dude, we got to like we got to make this a global brand. We got to introduce global more global cars." And as a result, I'm, I built a global design team. Right, there was I had I had a I had a design director who was from Mexico. I, one of my best employees was Rio Asada, who's unfortunately no longer with us, bless his soul. But, you know, I, I grabbed him from Art Center. Um, he was from Japan. Juno Mai, who's like Japanese-American. Um, we have got Fraser Campbell, who was British. We had, um, we, had, we, had, we had guys from all over the world in the design team, replacing all of the guys who only knew muscle cars and hot rods. And so that was if I've got a le- if I've got a legacy, and it's a long time now, and I still talk about it like it was yesterday. But it's a long time; that's ten years since I've really been there. Um, but if I have a legacy, it was it was not only the full size stunts that we did and the world records that we did, but it was the the globalization of the product line. I think the, the opening the opening the brand up to later collaborations with people like Magnus Walker, etc. Um, that I think that was my legacy more than anything else. I mean, as as somebody who is still an avid uh, Hot Wheels collector, probably I just need a bigger bed so I can store more underneath it. But <laughs> I think one of the things that always attracted me to the brand it, it was the fact that, like, I knew I could go out and I could Hot Wheels was going to make a Ferrari, they were going to make a Lamborghini, I could get those, and I could see those. I had them on my wall, but it was the wild stuff that Hot Wheels and Matchbox would do, the twin mills, the the weird creations that you know that, that you would never see on the street. Well, I shouldn't say that because now Chip Foose and people like that have gone out and built them in real life. And like you said, you guys have done real life jumps and things like that. But that was the creativity of something like as a kid that sat in class and never wanted to listen, but was drawing cars and didn't have a lot of talent. And I was drawing weird shit. And then you'd go to this, look on the pegs, and then there was some master weird, you know, dragon car or something that was really... You know, it was kind of cool. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's the magic of the brand still to this day, right? Is that like variety is a spice of life for Hot Wheels. When you get into the mathematics of like how many pegs you've got to, how many how many pegs you got to turn over every month, and like how rapidly you need to see a completely new selection on the pegs, you realize that like for every guy who's a brain dead BMW collector, there are a thousand kids who like dinosaur cars, right? And so. Yep. That stuff, and, and they've managed to keep that stuff. I mean, in, in some respects, if I'm being critical, I think they've gone too far the other way with all of the license stuff. Like, I, 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 I started the character car thing and the, the, the Star Wars Hot Wheels. and But it, to me, that always needed to be tempered so it didn't get out of control. And I think it's very easy in, in modern life to get carried away with the licensing business and please the licensor again and again. It's easy money and so Um But the main thing was that all the guys who designed the cars when I was a kid that I loved, they genuinely came from the culture. They were hot rod guys. Larry and the guys, they used to all drive crazy cars. And so as we kind of like rebuilt the design team for a new generation in the in the um, you know, in, in, in the in kind of like around the around the kind of late two thousands into twenty ten, etc. It was important that we took guys who understood the culture. They weren't just art center car designers they were each one of them had a quirky character flaw you know each one of them each one of them knew what wild was in the modern age and also most of them had a respect for what had gone before so most of them could turn out a legitimate you know 
32 Ford Highboy if they wanted to. Um, and then there was a couple of guys that were still there, like Phil Realman and Mark Jones, who were both legends in their own in their own world. Um, they're still there, you know. Uh, Mark Jones and Phil Realman are the keepers of. They're kind of the keepers of the Larry Wood flame. Larry, I think Larry still does a little bit of work for them and dots in and out occasionally. Wow. Um, and then you got Brendan Vitevsky as well. I mean, he, he, you know, Brendan builds his own cars. He's got this. He's got this gasser that he built, a fifty-five Chevy gasser he built, which is in the Hot Wheels line. And he, cool. So he designs Hot Wheels cars by day, and then goes home and builds them in his garage. And he built, and he builds like major builds. He's not just like adding wheels and suspension. He's like, you know, cut the subframe off down to the firewall, fabricate a front end, and put a Hemi in it. You know, so like he all in his driveway. So that's awesome. That's well, an awesome I mean, team. and I mean, and I, I, again, I want to move on to this a little bit. But I, you were talking about filling the pegs, but like I had somebody looking at my collection one time, and I mean, I, I have. I've gotten into it to the point where I'm finding the, the, the treasure hunts and the super treasure hunts and things like that. And somebody's looking at my collection and like, you have seven of the same car, but they're in different colors. And I was like, no, I have seven different cars. <laughs> I was like, that's the cool thing about Hot Wheels is they can produce something, you know, a Porsche and they can put it in green. And I will go back the next week when it comes out on the pegs in red and I will buy it again. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about your transition out of the toy world. I think it was like in 2015 that you co-founded, uh, is it Hackrod? Yep. Yep. I, I that was... You know, I, I kind of I realized in the first, like for the first kind of twenty years of my career that the thing that really turned me on was doing stuff nobody had ever done before. Right? That 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 like, um, I, I, innovation is is kind of it's what I do. I don't like I'm not the guy who sits in the shed and invents something, but I I I get a I get a kick out of helping brilliant people be brilliant and helping innovation happen, which is a very difficult thing to do, really, um, especially in a corporate structure and. Around about 2014, I started getting a bit tired. I, I, I was, I, it was the best job in the world until it became a pain in the ass. And the other thing that it, it, it was beginning to eat away at me was the kind of downward spiral of profit over quality in the global manufacturing supply chain. Right, like the the, share, the shareholders want to see their growth. The company doesn't want to put the prices up, so the only way, the only place you can go is make the product cheaper. And that's not just Mattel. That's everybody. That's everything, right? You, yeah. You know, you buy a coffee maker today, and I can tell you what, it's going to be crap compared to the one you remember ten years ago because that's just the way they do it. And so I, I was like, I need to get out of this. This is, you know, I don't want to be in nineteen fifties manufacturing where innovation is moving the machines closer together, so the guy only has to walk two steps rather than three. You know. <laughs> um, and and the, the funny thing is, I remember as a kid watching a, a kids' TV show with the BBC where they showed how Matchbox cars were made, right? And it was a very vivid memory. I can only have been five years old when I saw that film. And I've since seen that film. It's on YouTube. You can find it. It's a very old English, like, 1960s, like, documentary film about how Matchbox cars are made. And when I first visited a diecast factory in China, I was stunned that they were still doing it the same way, but it was just, it was in China. It wasn't, you couldn't afford to do it like that anymore in the, in, in, in the US yeah. or UK. It's in China. And that kind of like hung around for about 10 years in my head. And so I decided to jump. Um, and I'd just been introduced to some people that, um, through being at Hot Wheels and with, with my partner who was a movie director, um, or my partner to be who was a movie director, I got invited to Autodesk to look at like, future technologies and we'd been using 3d printing for years as prototyping but i was i was suddenly dropped into this show and tell where they were showing us how things were now being actually manufactured with 3d printing how virtual reality had suddenly become like something which really was an experience that was usable rather than just a dream 
that where generative design and artificial intelligence and machine learning were beginning to create not only incredibly efficient structures, but incredibly beautiful structures that humans can't really generate. Um, and I just fell in love with advanced manufacturing. And, and to me, I just saw this this place that was, it was something that was going to happen, that, that, that you could either sit and wait for the tidal wave to come and find yourself out of a job, or you can embrace the future and start working out new ways of using these technologies to, to make the world a better place or to make product better or to make cars more beautiful or higher performance or whatever it was. And so I ditched and founded Hackrod Inc. Um, and spent several years trying to get a platform together. The, fo the focus of it really was using all of these technologies. Can you give an ordinary guy the experience of building a custom car or motorcycle? Can you put a VR headset on and be in the video game, but the stuff you're manipulating is actually like real card, real product? And can you configure your own custom motorcycle? And once you're happy with it, once you've looked at it in photo real, full-size VR, click buy now and have all of those custom parts manufactured automatically with 3D printing and, and, and have them delivered to your door to bolt on your custom motorcycle. And so we... You know, we, we worked very hard. We built a great demo of that. But, you know, my partner wanted to get more into the military side of things. Um, the 3D print technology was still not quite there. I think with motorcycles, the price point, the, the price value, if you were a guy who wanted to spend 50 to 80 grand on a custom motorcycle, we could do it for 30 and you would be part of the creative process. And I thought that was a very marketable, you know, we were that was the sweet spot. We weren't making cheap motorcycles, but we were making we were making affordable custom motorcycles. And then my partner wanted to do more of the military stuff, and I that's not where I wanted to be. Uh, I didn't I didn't get into it to be a government contractor or, or an agency servicing the government. Um, and so, and this was I was just like things weren't going right, and 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 I'd, I I I wasn't really getting the the control of my destiny that I wanted, and so I I quit. I made the decision after five years to get out of that, and I figured I would just go and get a design executive role somewhere. Um, in this time, I'd become a father, um, and I'd, I'd started painting just to kind of bring in a bit of extra money because the, the company wasn't paying me enough to keep our heads above water. I'd sold all my cars, kiss goodbye to the 964, kiss goodbye to the RS6, kiss oh. goodbye to the Porsche 914, kiss goodbye to the dune buggies. Like, I, I, everything was gone at this point. You're breaking um, my heart over here. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like, you know, you take, you, you, you roll the dice. I'm a big believer in rolling the dice in life, right? Like, I'm not someone who's ever going to sit and be comfortable just because I'm wealthy if I just feel like I'm stagnating. And so I rolled the dice, <laughs> took a risk, didn't work, quit my job or quit the company, walked away from the company, figured I would get a, go back to work in the toy industry, to be honest. And then two weeks later, the pandemic became a pandemic. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 double, double, double whammy snake eyes, you know, yeah. that's got to be good from an artist standpoint, though. It's like, you can't leave the house. So just go ahead and sit there and do your other talents of, well, you know, <laughs> everything would, everything would have been fine if my wife hadn't then announced about a month later, she wanted a divorce and I need to go and find somewhere to live. Um, oh, okay. and so I was like, oh shit, I really better stop painting. Fortunately. <laughs> Fortunately, I had sold a couple of pieces. I'd sold my first couple of pieces on Bring a Trailer for, for good money and, and had realized that the kind of demand for my work um, wasn't certainly wasn't something I could take. You know, the first couple I thought, yeah, it's just a fluke, man. No one's done it. It's new and interesting. 
But then I just started getting hit up by kind of like fan messages, basically, um, of people who wanted to commission me to do stuff or people asking when the next one was going to be available or the guy who, who had missed out because he was in a meeting and couldn't bid. And so I was like, I just need to turn this up a little bit. And, and so I, I, des- I decided that it was time to learn to paint properly. Um, it had, okay. It had, been, it, had, it had been a bit fluky up until that point. So you fooled us. Yeah. I've always had this whole imposter syndrome thing. I, I, I think that's probably where the exciting stuff happens. But if you, if you still consider yourself a rank amateur, then you're always striving to be better, right? And, and, and I, yeah. I, I generally look at myself like I'm still a rank amateur. You know, I don't know really what works and what doesn't. It just seems to. And I follow the, follow the, I'm very lazy. I follow the, follow the path of least resistance. You know, it's yeah. That whole speech that we just got seemed very lazy. That's <laughs> that's what I was interpreting. <laughs> Nothing from you, but sure. a disappointment. Yeah. No, I was uh, you. You. I thought of a lot of questions as you were speaking through that. Uh, one, uh, it seems like the the platform you had created um, with three D printing stuff and things like that. Like you, it seems it's getting that is going to be more and more applicable as we see, like you know, the skateboard design of electric cars. Yeah. Because now it's really just bolting on panels to whatever platform you got. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really just a fancy electric skateboard at this point. There are, and there, so, yeah, go I mean, ahead. That's exactly it. I mean, I think that, I think if anything, we were ahead of the curve. We were well ahead of the curve. You know, we, yeah. we, we were coming at it from futurists and I was desperately trying to find the, I was desperately trying to find the traction. What's the, what's the tangible thing we can do today? Um, but we feel it's one of those things, you know, we failed to raise the money because we were, everybody loved the vision, but nobody understood what the product was. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, for, for reasons that we'll go into once we get through the art, it, 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 it was the right thing for me to do. Yeah. And, and, and I'm now in a different industry because of it. Um, but also I just love, I just love the artistry of what's going on now. When you look at what people are doing now, whether you look at, um, uh, divergent with um, Kevin Singer and Singer Zinger, Singer Cars, right? Where you yeah. look at, that stuff is the stuff. I, what they're doing is exactly what I what I what I what I knew was going to happen, and I wanted to do it. Um, where it's the convergence of of of, of workable three D printing with for manufacturing and generative design and artificial intelligence for engineering solutions, and they are it's it's wild. But then, you, and then you look at you look at like um, I, I was chatting with my mate Dimitri, who's at BBI. He's one of the engineers at BBI. I was just going to say BBI. Yeah, yeah. and and they yeah. and they they've been for years. They've been doing some really incredible one-off like intake systems and and, and and stuff with 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 additive, which you get. A, you, you can do it if your engine, you know, if you're building a hundred thousand dollar engine, you can afford to have an Inconel exhaust manifold three D printed, right? It makes yep. sense. Um, but then even like you scan, you, you cruise, you cruise YouTube now. And there's guys who are like, I was watching a guy who's got a channel and he's in the UK and he autocrosses a, a mini, like, a um, uh, he's, I think it's got a, it's either got a Honda engine in it or a Vauxhall engine in it or something, but it's, it's an, it's an original mini autocross car. And he's like printing his own velocity stacks and experimenting with different lengths of intake stacks for his ITB system. And like he's just got a desktop printer and he's making that shit in his garage and boating on his car and going to the races on so a cool. Yeah, you know? it's, it's amazing to me. Many many years ago, I went up to uh, there's a, a truck company here. They were and they were three D printing, and we got a, a, a tour of it. And yeah, heavy equipment, heavy equipment, all that. And I and I just thought it was amazing. And now the fact that you can have that sitting on your desk, and you like you said, you can print something, come up with an idea, put it into a CAD program, and print it out and have it tested that day. When you think about the process it used to take, 
So yeah. and yeah. it's yeah. it's no longer just prototype work; it's gone into production, which is awesome. Yeah, and you can and you can get you can now as as a hobbyist, you can buy polymers now, which are almost kind of OEM standard. You know, they've got the right yeah. kind of chemical resistance and heat resistance. They don't warp when they get hot. They've got the right structural properties. Um, I've just started a project. I bought a, a, one of the things I did in the fall was I bought um, I picked up a, a, a super beetle. Um, oh, cool! Seventy-three super beetle. While I'm waiting for my expensive projects to get finished, I figured this was a nice way to do an art car that was kind of a car that people have overlooked. I like the German look super beetles you see, where they've got seventeen-inch Porsche wheels and they've got wider fenders. And I think they're they're a, they're a I, I actually really love the look. Of, I didn't used to when I was a kid, but I love the super beetle. But one of the things I want to do with it is um, I want to I don't want to run bumpers on it. And there's a look that the Germans do with this Camier um, spoiler on a super beetle. Mm-hmm. But I realized that they bolt to the bumper. So you've got to run a bumper to have that cameo look. And I don't want to do that. I want a bumperless. So um, I'm just start. I was just talking to one of my interns from the Hackrod days about basically designing and 3D printing aero for this Super Beetle and like <laughs> doing like my take on it on a, on a small kind of ducktail for the back of it that fits not on the not on the engine lid, but just below the window and ducts more cooling air in. Yeah. And these are the kind of things that you can do now if you can play with Fusion Fusion 360 for like a few days, you know, use a bit of logic. If you know if, if you if you were good at tech drawing when you were at school or whatever, card basic card, you you can now make your own custom parts like and and print them out and they're they're completely custom. You don't have to master fabrication, laying up glass fiber and all the rest of it. So I kind of want to, you know, I want to I want to lead I want to lead by example. It's all very well being academic. But I kind of feel like you sometimes you just got to get in there and do it. It's very exciting. Well, thank God you didn't end up in the automotive industry where everything's just you know one of the one of the Henry Ford say build a faster horse. Yeah, if yeah. you'd ask people, and so yeah. it's like at least because you can see how the your creative juices got to flow in Hot Wheels and then throughout your life from that. And I, I, do you feel like that would have been stumped in the automotive industry? It was the way things just kind of, you know, what, what what's the next white SUV? Yeah. I, <laughs> I, mean, like, SUV? You know, I, I honestly, it's, it's hilarious. I, 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 I mean, absolutely. Yes. Right. Um, and, and it's funny how many, when I, one of, one of my proudest things with Hot Wheels was when we started, it was where, it was where failed car designers went to work. And by the time I finished my tenure, I was getting some of the biggest names in car design in the world, ringing up and asking if they could work for Hot Wheels. Um, because as the as as everything in life, right, every, the, the auto industry just generally becomes more and more conservative because you know marketing and finance guys want more and more guarantees and less and less risk, and therefore less risk means that there's less art applied mm-hmm. to cars. And so we're in the. I have honestly, I have so little interest in modern cars now. I, I, you know, I find myself in a position where I can buy really buy what w- you know whatever I want as a new car to commute in. Um. I just, I just, I just can't bring myself to spend the money. I just think, yes, there's some wonderful driving machines, but my God, they're boring. Even the good ones are boring, aren't they? Really? What What are you driving? Out of curiosity, um, I have at the moment. I have an Audi S4 Avant. Yeah. Um, yes. Which I picked up. I, it, it's it, it was my that was my kind of artist bottom of the rung car. I picked it up from a friend with a broken transmission. It had a Tiptronic in it. And uh, I put the investment into having it swapped for a six-speed, and the car, nice. you know, it's in a, and it's a high-spec, low-mileage car. And so I was like, right, bang five grand's worth of work into it to put a six-speed in it, and, yeah. and uh, it's bitching. And I've just made the decision to, I'm going to drop another ten in now to have the belts done and have the and have the transmission rebuilt. Um, 
I just got a set of KW V3s. It's got V1s in it, but I'm going to upgrade the V3s for a little bit more kind of tuning in the in the suspension. Um, it's just a great little like commuter weapon in Los Angeles. You know what I mean? And it's it's a good looking car. I, I love the yep. way it looks. And so I was looking at, I was getting excited about like, do I just bite the bullet and buy like an RS6 with, with like a, with a with a loan and hope yeah. it doesn't depreciate too much? And I was like, fuck it. Yeah, but it's not, you're not connected to that car. Yeah. I mean, I had an RS6 and it was the best car, but it was the previous gen. It was like the first gen RS6. And I loved that. And when I first sat in this S4, I felt the same. It didn't, it's not as fast, but it has the same feel. It's very like, especially with the manual box, man, it's a very, very like ethereal car. You feel like you're still a little bit in touch with what's going on outside the car. It's small enough to like really be a hooligan, but it's big enough to be a family (laughs) car. Um, and it's a good looking thing and it's rare as hen's teeth now, especially with a six speed. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in, in doing the math on, on what's it costing you per year to own a car. And if I drop 10 grand into this thing, it's going to be bitching. But when I, but when you amortize that against the next three years of daily use, it's nothing. It's, it seems like a lot of money, 10 grand. And then you're like, not if you amortize it across three years, it's nothing. I want I want to talk about something. If if anybody's been to your website and things like that, there will be several. There will be a car that sits on there that everybody knows, and that's Magnus Walker's car and, and the paintings you've done with his cars. Can you talk about your relationship with that and how it's kind of affected your art and how you ended up working with him? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things. It, it, my relationship with Magnus has been something that's kind of grown over the, over, over quite over the past ten years. Really, I met him. I first met him, I was invited by a friend of mine. A friend of mine, Matt Crook, ran um, 1552 Wheels. Mm, yeah. And he had, he had been working with Magnus for a year. They'd done the Outlaw Wheel with Magnus. Um, and Magnus's second movie came out, the Turbo Fever movie. And I got an invite through Matt. I was still at Hot Wheels at the time to go to the premiere down at the, the, the Red Bull headquarters. And so I met Magnus that night very briefly. I took a. I turned up in my Manx. I was late, and Matt flagged me into the parking lot, and he just said, "Park there." And I had this, like, I had this. It's an, it was an original Manx, but it was a dune buggy, and so cool. I, was like, I was late. So I pulled in, parked, jumped out, ran into the premiere to come out later and realize I'd parked my car right in the middle of Magnus's cars, and so there was this, there was this like dune buggy, <laughs> dune buggy badly parked in the middle of all of the outlaw, all of the urban outlaw cars, like, and and so I. I, I I said to Magnus, like, oh, sorry, man, like, I was late, blah, 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 I'm Felix, Hot Wheels, and he was like, oh, you're, you're a northerner, nice to meet you, man, because we're from, we're only from a couple hundred miles away from each other, we're, we're, from yeah. the, we're basically from the same place and the same time, you know. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. And so I started bumping into him at events on and off, and we kind of, we got to be quite good friends, and then I had just started talking about getting more Porsches in the line of Hot Wheels when I quit. And kind of handed the handed the baton off to Juno Mai, who then struck up a, a, a relationship with Magnus and got him into the Hot Wheels line. And then we'd kind of just stayed in touch via Instagram for a few years. And I had a nine fourteen Porsche that I was like flipping, um, and I'd had an accident in it. In the it had rolled it had rolled down my driveway and I was working on it, and it had trapped my foot and cut oh. the door. Right, it was something that could have been disaster. Ooh. Fortunately, it wasn't disastrous, but. It destroyed the door, and it was a silver car, and I couldn't even close the door on it. So I had to find the door really quick, and the only door I could find was a yellow door off a racing car, an old race car. And at the last minute before I put the door on the car, I, I don't know what made me do it, but I painted, I laid a dustbin lid down on the door and drew round it for like a like a, a, a semi kind of like a large 
roundel that was half on and half off the door. And then I put a black outline and a black arrow on it and bolded it on the car. And I ran it like that for a while. And everybody thought it was cool. Instagram, it was an Instagram hit. But when I came to sell it, nobody wanted to buy it because it had a yellow door with an arrow on it. And after a couple of months of it sitting outside my house and I put another post up saying, you know, I'm going to like, I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do with this if someone doesn't buy it soon. Magnus hit me up. He's like, oh dude, I've just seen your car. I love it. Can I come around and buy it? And so I sold him it. And within a I mean, of- sure, but you know, it's just new on the market, so it'll cost you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I got it. I got it. He gave me a fair price for it. He didn't. He didn't, he didn't beat me up on it. Let's just say that. Um, and and then within hours, he was sending me images. He was texting me photos of him like laying tape. And one of the, the the reason he bought my car, he didn't want another 914. He had one, but he loved the door. He loved my art, and he'd been looking at kind of like mod rock graphics and like the arrows and lines on, on, on sidewalks and uh, in, in city centers and on airport runways. And my car had just shown him how to do it. But within a couple of hours, he was sending me photographs of him laying tape on it and putting more arrows on it. And we, we just started this very casual, oh, I like that bit, but have you thought about this? And how about that? And so he kind of like, he lined these ideas out and he put them up on Instagram and Mobile One hit him up, who we had a relationship with and said, We've got a slot on the booth at SEMA next week. Can you get the car done in time? And he rang me and he's like, oh, like, do you think we could do it? And so I was like, I'll be there on Wednesday. <laughs> I had nothing else going on. And so we painted the thing in three days as, as, as this, you know, graffiti, rattle can, pop art, Porsche. Um, and it's so, got an awesome patina to it, it's though. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, we're literally we, we're, cool. we're, we've been looking at Instagram all day, but like we're just got pulled up and looking at more pictures of it now. So. Yeah, I was like, yeah. where is that? I, I love that. the roof too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, it was like we 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 just we painted. We didn't have a plan. We went into it. We had a couple of ideas on the car. The, the main, the arrow, and the Union Jack on the trunk, um, and the, and the big yellow arrow. Like my thing when when he when he bought the car from me, I was saying, I was like, the one thing I always wanted to do was put an arrow down the hood, but directly in line with the center of the steering wheel. And that was, those were the two elements that we knew we were going to do. And then we kind of made the car up over the course of three days. And as we painted the piece, we'd stand back and then come up with another idea on how to balance it out. And it's all like, it's all got little touches of from heritage, right? It, it, it's got, it's got red scallops on one front fender's got a red scallop and one rear fender's got a red scallop, which is a, a hit on the old James Dean little bastard three, uh, five fifty. Sure. Yeah. There's also, there's a story to every panel. Um, it. But also the thing that I love, I don't like cars that are shiny. And, you know, I like doing just enough with a car where it's it's respectable. But it's a little bit like, you know, it's like a nice worn leather jacket. And and Magnus certainly loves that stuff. I mean, he's made a career out of that as a designer. Um, and so as we got into it, the car wasn't the car wasn't nice enough to be precious with, right? There was mismatched silver paint. It wasn't a it wasn't an original Porsche colour, it had been sprayed before. There was a couple of dings and dents on it. And so as we got into it, we, we decided that the whole thing had to wear that patina. So we, we basically took the patina from this car that was far from perfect. And, and, and once we created all these perfect graphics, we then rubbed through it. And we spent all of the Sunday morning like just rubbed, I was sanding say, our work off it, basically. That, that front, that front, I think driver's fender in, in the middle of the arrow working, uh, the arrow working the patina off there. Yeah, yeah. yeah it it yeah. looks. And, it, it just, and that was the intention, right? We wanted it. Part of it was wanted, we wanted it to look like if it had been a race car and, and we'd uncovered different liveries on different panels, 
and part of it was we wanted to look as though it, it was like an old leather jacket you'd found in a in a, in a closet somewhere, right? Um, where it's got wear on the it's got wear on the elbows and it it, it shows its battle scars. Um, and I think I, I I love it. I mean, I love it. It came out brilliant, man. You know, and I wouldn't have had the confidence to do that myself. I might have I might have balanced it with a couple of like and like I said, I might have put the arrow on the hood, um, but I wouldn't have gone that far. And that was the start of like. That was that that experience opened my eyes a bit to thinking a bit looser, um, and then Magnus once once my art started taking off and I was beginning to get some like recognition and some pretty heavy dollars on the sales. Magnus, we were chatting one day, and Magnus was like, "Do we should do it? We should do a collaboration on a painting." And it took me a few months of like, "Wait, hang on a minute, I'm the artist. What are you going to do?" <laughs> And then I just had to get out my own way. And I was like, don't be silly, man. Like the marketing, just from marketing alone, the idea of doing something with Magnus was going to be valuable to me. But I then remembered how we'd worked on the 914 and realized that, you know, he he has a knack of like, he because he's not a trained designer, he thinks very differently. And everything that he does comes purely from his sense of what the universe tells him is cool, you know? Um He's one of these individuals who's just done. He says it all the time: do what do what feels right. And so, I kind of had to do a little bit of project management as I thought about the painting that I did of two seven seven. In how would I make sure that I could control the overall painting, but allow his creativity to have a very real role, so that when we talked about it being a collaboration, it wasn't just his signature on my painting. And so I took him down to the river and we ran the car in the, in the LA river and I took some photographs and then I manipulated that image in the way that I would for any painting. But I left enough blank areas because I knew we were going to put graphics in it like we'd done on the, um, on the 914. And I took a pile of, and he works very old school, photocopies and tape and pencils. And so I took a load of photocopies of the sketch over to his place. And we like spent a morning kind of coming up with ideas and like put the Union Jack in the sky, but put it at the same angle as the bridge and put this lightning bolt from his tattoo in. And then and I, the American flag and then the arrows. I mean, it's incredible. It's awesome. Yeah. 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 I, 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 it's, it's, it, and the long, the long, the longest story of it was that it, it opened up again. It allowed, I'd been thinking about telling more story with my art. When I was in the when I was in my band back in the early two thousands in the UK before I moved to the States, I started painting and I was doing stencils and I was doing like modernist architecture because I'm a big fan of like modernist and brutalist architecture and I was I was building these like psychedelic images using like very very grey concrete architecture but doing a bit of graffiti and stencil and like Warhol esque pop art colours. And so I had been thinking for a long time about combining the cars with that. And this this painting kind of gave me an opening to have the confidence to dive in. And then I'd been thinking about bringing more kind of ethereal graphics and movement to paintings. And Magnus sat down there and started scribbling in some graphics. And it's kind of really, it, it, it's, it's kind of marked a, a new direction for me as I go through this year and what I'm going to be working on. I'm looking at your collection online, and man, the I love the don't lift the the, the smiley face and the dripping paint um, from the the fog light cover on the hood. Yeah, it's just like everything about your art is just awesome. Um, I'm just sitting here trying to imagine my house and where yep. I can find some place on my wall. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's more shop. my issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> so, yeah. The, the, the thing, one of the things I want to, one of the things that's on my mind is like I don't want to paint. There's there's a lot of really brilliant car artists out there, right? There are some. There are some legends um like tom fritz 
there's there's a there's a lad out in Spain, uh, Manu Campo, who's just a fucking brilliant painter. Um, but I I like for me, I don't want, I I'm not a good enough painter to do like photorealistic stuff. And then really for photorealistic stuff, I'm kind of like, what's the point? It's a bit of a kind of feels like a parlor trick, right? Well, hell, you're not. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> I'm looking at this stuff. It's so totally photorealistic. Is cool. Don't get yeah. me wrong, but yeah, it's yeah, if I want photorealistic, I'll get a photo. Yeah, I kind of. This is what I want. <laughs> yeah, I, I come I, I come from a my my background is in like you know punk rock and indie bands and acid house and skateboarding. A lot of the stuff that has formed me back in my head, my heyday, because I, I recognize I'm now a total gray beard. And when I, when I talk about like acid house and the hacienda, it was 30 odd years ago. That's like, <laughs> you know, um, that's old. That's longer ago than Sergeant Pepper was to me when I was, a, when I was 17, right? Like it's like a long time ago, but I think that the, the icons from those periods, right? The, the, the icons from the 80s skate scene, the icons from, Acid House and House Music in the UK in the late 80s. The, 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 the iconography of streetwear, of, of comic books, is all still very relevant and being regurgitated. Every couple of years, it comes back into fashion, then it goes out in something else. And, and for me, cars have always just been part of that, right? Um, mm-hmm. I was going to say Retrowave. Like every Retrowave album out there has an 80s car on yeah. the cover now. And then I'm thinking of like, you know, Orbital Chemical Brothers, I'm sure, around the corner for us, again, with some other remix. hundred percent, yeah. you know. And I, I think that cars are such a, they're such a kind of marker of both period and fashion and time. And, and, and you know, the thing I always used to say at Hot Wheels was, like, cars are, like, generally, even more so now, really, cars are, the, like, a lot of the time now, cars are the most expensive thing that anybody will ever buy. Less people can afford to buy a house. And so the second most expensive thing used to be a car. Now, I think that's what's, you know, I think that's the big blow up in all of these like kids driving around in supercars. Like they're never going to buy a house. They can't afford a mortgage. So in- instead they take a mortgage out to drive a car. But I see no issue with that. <laughs> people, yeah. And people take it seriously, you know, it, it, guilty. It's easy. To, yeah, I know. It, <laughs> and, and so when you, when you see cars as fashion and you see cars as part of the kind of the social discourse, whether it's around politics or fashion or whatever it is, they're very important, you know? Um, and, and so that's what I try to capture in my art. And, and obviously I realized that bring a trailer people love, like I got into it through music and fashion and culture and movies, but most people get into cars because they used to watch racing cars when they were a kid. I used to watch formula one and group B rally when I was in the eighties, but I was never real. I'm not a sportsman. I don't do sports. I don't get excited by sports. And so I come at it from like more of like the kind of fashion and culture and movie side of things. But I also recognize that for a lot of people, you know, and the Grali is like just an absolute pinup for them because they used to work, they, they grew up watching rally, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, the first real money that I made on a painting on bring a trailer was the, I mean, I have to say that all of my, all of my paintings have blown my brain in terms of what people want to pay for them. But, um, the, the, I did a I did a, um, a nine three five Porsche Brumos nine three five Porsche, and and realized that like the amount of feedback and excitement that painting created, I, I suddenly realized that for a lot of the crowd, a lot of people who love cars got into it because of the excitement they felt watching motor racing, and I'm now trying to work out how to take motor racing art to another level as well without without it becoming too fashiony if you if you know what I'm saying. But I want to I want to bring I want to bring more stuff to life. I think I might do it. I might do a Formula One car next for, for Bring a Trailer. 
how long does it take from when, when you say, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a BMW M1 pro car to, to when you're finished or is it, is it, is it a long process or? Yeah, I, it, it depends. Sometimes I'll come up with an idea and I'm really excited about it and it just flows and it takes me two or three weeks. Um, nice. but then sometimes, you know, I've got a paint, there's a painting behind me right now hung on the wall that I've, I've been on the wall for a year now. I haven't touched it because I get to a point with it and then I have to sit and think about it. I'm not I, like, it's funny. I, I say this, I'm not a natural painter. You know, I, I don't, um, I didn't study classically how to paint and I didn't ever study car design really. And so all of the tricks that a lot of guys learn technically on how to build a car and have success with making a car look glossy and shiny and whatever it is, it takes me a long time to figure that out on every painting I do. But then that's not good enough for me. I think I said it in the article. What I like to do is get it to the point where most people will be really proud of painting an almost photorealistic acrylic painting of a car. And then I fuck it up because for me, I want to get the I want to get, the, I want to get the, I want to get the motion and the punk rock, and I, I use a lot of pink and fluoro green and fluoro orange in my stuff because the car might not have any pink in it, but to me, I want I want to be able to see sound and see motion, and to me, that's where the violent colors come in. Um, Those colors are so '80s, related to '80s to me, as far as the neon colors, the pink and the yellow, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying not to be an '80s. Realize I actually am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> keep trying. It's t- it, you not trying is working out really well. Yeah, so uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's some, something's working. I, I, it's one of those things, right? I, I haven't ever lost. I haven't ever lost that attitude of like shock tactics that I got from being in bands. You know, of, of like, you know, like the, the kind of like two fingers to establishment. Fuck you. Pink and yellow are the best colors you can possibly put on an album cover. You know, um, and I think that that's that's the world I love in. I don't I, I don't like conservative. I'm, I, you know, I, I, my Porsche is, I've just kicked off. I've got it. I'm, I'm building, I've been building for years. It's my longest project, really. I've got, I've got a 1970T Porsche, and it's going to be a three liter outlaw car. And it's been on a frame table at my buddy's place for like years while I figured out how I could start paying him to keep welding it up. Um, but I can't wait to get that down here because it's going to be, it will eventually be a very nice shiny car, but in the in the in the early days, as I figure out exactly what fenders and what look I want to build, it's going to be completely punk rock, manga, acid house, like different colored panels and different graphics. And I've got all these different ideas that I've, that uh, the, the 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 don't lift painting was actually uh, it started as just a concept painting for my car with the kind of single dripping yellow smiley face, like spotlight cover on it, and the kind of you know, purple and pink kind of worn paint where you can see pink through purple. And I'm kind of excited. I'm excited about that. That's the, that's the long-term, like, especially in the Porsche world. I'm a big Porsche fan. I'm not only, a, I, my, I love all cars and that's part of my problem really. Um, but <laughs> so you're a hot guy, you're a hot rod guy too. I'm, I'm, I'm like, so everything. I've got, I've got six projects at the moment, including my daily. So my daily is the Audi, which is a project because it's got, you know, KW suspension and, 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 and stiffer sway bars and, and is about to get rebuilt again. I spent the hour before signing into you guys putting a Belltech lowering and handling kit on my Dodge Ram, which I just picked up. I picked up a I wanted I needed a truck for really for business for shifting art supplies and, and framing supplies and things. Um, and so I picked up a but I couldn't bring myself to do the twisty the turning knob on a Dodge Ram. I, I love Dodge Rams. That's that's my truck of choice. 
Oh, well, the, I, you're the, the the shifter, you mean? No, nah, I mean honestly, I could, I, yeah. could, I yeah. could, I could, I could shoot marketing people when they make that choice. I, I'm like, <laughs> it's it's no, it's it okay. serves it serves no purpose other than saving money. It's atrocious. If you've ever been in like a quad cab or crew cab Dodge Ram trying to do a quick three point turn in the middle of a tight road, and you're kind of having to reach down and look to make sure you're in the right position, yeah, yeah, I, I just oh, like so. I discovered I discovered recently that there was a there was a Dodge Ram RT. It's the shorty single cab. Yeah, um, whole truck. There was a Dodge Ram RT for a couple of years that I didn't realize existed, and they and they had kept the console shifter in it. And so I that was I was like, that's the one. So I sourced one that already had a lowering kit on it, and it realized the lowering kit was awful. And so I got um, a, a Belltech lowering and handling kit, which I've literally been lying on my back. Um, like earlier earlier today, cursing at trying to kind of angle grind bump stops off this frame. So that's that. And then I've got a 31 Ford hot rod, which has been the long, like original Survivor 50s hot rod with a flathead. That's been the second longest project. Well, that's actually been the longest project. I bought that before the Porsche. That's just about done. It's it's now a, a perfectly usable hot rod. Um, I've got a Super Beetle. I've got the Porsche. I've got uh, a 79 Volkswagen Dasher, which... Oh, cool. Is is it, it was my my first car was a Passat seventy one uh, seventy nine Passat sorry seventy nine and I'd always said regardless of what where I am in the world if I ever find a seventy nine facelift silver Mark one Passat or Dasher as they were called here then I will buy it and of course what turned up on Craigslist in Los Angeles when I was literally at my lowest ebb where I literally <laughs> I am not joking I had two thousand dollars in the bank. <laughs> For two thousand dollars there was like, a two well. door <laughs> two door coupe one owner. 79 in silver. You can live in a car. You can't drive a house. Yeah. So, exactly yeah. That's exactly it. <laughs> and so, so that one's on the, that one's on the back burner. Um, but I, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a full airbag kit for that. I'm, I'm building, that car's going to get built in the way that I would, if I could have built my car how I wanted when I was 17, if I'd had the money to do it, then that's what it would have been. It would have been, well, it probably would have been in, on, on hydraulics in 89, but it's got, I've got a, I've got an airbag kit for it. Um, I've got all the bits and pieces to put that together fairly. So it'll be a cool water cooled. I love water cooled Volkswagens. I'm a, I'm a, I come from a VEG family. Oh, and those are just going up, man. Like you've made some pretty good investments overall, from what I'm hearing, especially with the Porsche. Obviously, those are going through the nuts. But man, like I used to throw away '80s Volkswagens, like mm, water cooled, yeah. like you know, blow a motor one weekend, go grab another one from the junkyard for a couple yeah. hundred bucks, put it in, and you're good to go on Monday. Now it's like twenty grand if you want to yeah. mark one that's minimum, and, and that's a crappy one. And that's, yeah. the, that's that's the crazy thing. Certainly here on the West Coast, like all all water cooled VWs are always just like just like burnt out, like sunburned, yeah. bleached out. They would so disposable you know i grew up on the first new car we ever owned was a was a mark one cabriolet like uh, it was one of the first ones in the uk actually my, my dad bought it for my mom as our first ever new car and i just i i, I know i know they get called bitch baskets here because of the handle right <laughs> yeah. uh, they, like college girls, college girls drive them um but like i just love those cars and i've been looking for and I'm, I'm gradually watching the values i think i think I think that car is one of the most underappreciated, best value classic cars you could possibly spend money on, mm-hmm. um, because they are still even a real. There was I, I saw one today that was listed on. I, I'm, a, I'm a member of a few like VW Cabriolet, Mark One Cabriolet like Facebook pages, and I saw one today going for. It was it was an early car. It was a 1981 car, and it was perfect, and it was fifteen thousand dollars. Perfect. Low mileage, one owner, manual, perfect. And I was like, shit, that can't last for long, man. Like th- those the values of those ones. Yep. They're gonna go through the roof, yeah. 
I'm going to get to that point where I have that stupid mental block from when I was a kid when those were like 2500 bucks, yeah. and that was yeah. for a nice one. So even spending 15 like I know they're worth it now. That's what the market is, yeah. and they're pretty cool. But now it's like my head can't get past the fact that these things were like throwaway when I was a kid. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's all, all, all and how stuff. many we threw away as children too. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. 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 All, all the stuff, all the stuff I had when I was a kid. Now, like I mean, I was like I should start importing all of the great like eighties and nineties British cars I had when I was a kid. And then you look to see how much a Ford Escort costs in the UK, and it's like, oh my <laughs> god, I can buy a yeah. Porsche for that. Yep. Yeah, you know, Mark Mark Two. I had a Mark Two. GTI 16 valve, last like a 91 big bumper 16 valve in the UK when I worked at Mattel when I graduated. And it was just epic. Such an epic car. And the the, 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 the European ones were just a little bit lower. They didn't have the reflectors on the, and the, the interiors were nicer. The interiors yeah. were more like Germanic, like Mark 1 GTI, like tweeds with stripes and like. So and cool. I, I still, my buddy Matt, um, Matt Krug, he just, he just picked up a Mark 2 Rally, which was his dream car. And I'm so jealous of like, and he, I don't know whether it was an important car or what, but I think that, you know, I, I, if if there's anything that I want to spend money on and import, then it would probably be like a, a late '80s, early '90s Volkswagen of some sort, G60 probably. Those are freaking gold now. Yeah, remember, that, I remember when Corrado G60s were what five, six grand. If that, yeah. with inflation, that's probably like twelve now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now they're like, now they're you know, if you could find one, they're forty. <laughs> yeah, because they're all because they're all ragged, you know. Like and, yeah, and, you know, I think Matt, I think Matt just sold a, he just sold on Bring a Trailer. He sold a, he had to get uh, the, the color that I don't like in a Mark II Golf, Mark II 16 valve, big bumper, and it was that weird like teal metallic green, like a kind of mm-hmm. turquoise Montana green. green. Yeah, yeah, Montana green, right? That's one yeah. of my least favorite colors. But it went, it went stupid. It was like. What did you yeah. get for that car? 40 grand, 45, something like that? Those are, yeah, that's yeah, like but, the U.S. color. I don't know why I know that color from high school because I had a lot of, I was big into water-cooled Volkswagens back then too, and, and I remember that color. because Oh, like, you had a binder that color. Don't act like Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> not just a tattoo on my ass. Well, no, we, we all have, we, we, we want these cars because we're at an age now where we can afford them, and they yeah. were the cars we wanted as kids. I mean, I was just talking to our friend Brian Neelich the other day. I was like, I should be looking for another C6 Z06 because by the time I want one again, because it's the, I, and, you know, it's a, a they're at that point now to where they're just starting. Like people are like, huh, yeah. full motor Corvette. And I'm like, it was a terrible car I, to I drive. I found though. you one. It's wide body. It's on TikTok. It's only a hundred grand. I saw that one. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But no, I'm like, I'm, I seriously was like, I should be looking at those now. Cause by the time, like they, I, they're going to come with, around again. I'm going with Brian. If you're going to get that, you get the, the ZR one. I want the all motor car. Yeah. I'm I, 427. I want the window on the hood. I do too, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. You can cut a, a hole in a hoodie no matter what. So. You can still yeah. get them for like 45 grand is my point now. And I bet you they're going to be yeah. 100 grand by the time, yep. you know, five years from now. It's not watching the market, but who knows? I, I think that's a fascinating thing. that We're in this we're in this world now where people are I, – I, I think part of it is that now, like, to our generation, classic cars are actually like, you know, 70s and 80s cars, 90s cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those cars are totally usable, right? You don't have to get out there on a Saturday and, like, grease your – grease all the grease nipples on the suspension you don't have to like they're not they don't they don't smell bad you know you're not gassing the neighbors to drive like and that's all fun don't get me wrong i've got a yeah. ford with a flat head. but <laughs> i built that car before i was a dad right? i started that car 10 years ago before i was a dad and, and while you know and as soon as i finished it had like when i i built it with open headers um, like Lake's headers on it, and and I drove it down the street once I put it back on the road, and I was like, oh my god, I'm, this is literally going to kill me. This is like, <laughs> it seemed like a cool guy thing to do ten years ago, but now like I can't stand the smell of this car. Like, yeah. 
Whereas like, you know, 80s and 90s cars, they still they still feel like a modern if you get a good one, it still feels like a modern car you can you can actually use. And I think that's accelerated the kind of collector car market. There's more people now, men and women, who are into classic cars as a lifestyle and a social scene than I think there's ever been well, not since the seventies, right? Like it's become like it's just it's certainly here in Los Angeles. And I know that the work that Advance has done like up and down the West Coast and and like it, it, it's it's the idea that we're building social organizations around classic cars means that interesting cars are going to be in demand regardless. They're going to appreciate. If it's good now, it's going to be good in 10 years' time. And so now is the time to kind of take a gamble on stuff that might not be really fashionable now, but you like it. Go buy it, man, because it's not going to get cheaper, that's for sure. Well, you hit the sweet spot there too, I think, with the late 80s, early 90s, because everything was still light. It was before, every, like it was the mid '90s, I think, when everything switched to like airbag everything, big yeah. bumpers, and Heavy. so there yeah. was like a sweet spot. Like I'm thinking, like the '89 E30 M3, oh, which yeah. is still oddly undervalued. In there's no, don't be wrong, they're hundred thousand dollar cars now. Yeah. But if you look at Porsches, yeah, where there's hundreds of thousands of 911 air cooled 911s, there's like what less than five thousand E30 M3s, yeah. and they okay. sell for half the price. Yeah. And so, like, in that sense, they are undervalued. I think, yeah, I think, I think early to mid-90s was, like, peak car, right? Yeah. It was, like, yeah. cars were, they resolved a lot of, like, comfort, handling, and reliability issues, but they were still really, like, tinny boxes that were light on their feet and very, yeah. very manual. Um, and I, for me, I, I mean, I had a, I had a, I had a, 90, a 90.964, um, and it was just, like, oh, my God, it was bitching. Because it felt like a vintage car, but it felt like a modern car. Yeah, like you said, you could actually drive them. They weren't like falling yeah. apart at the seams like classics were. And yeah, and, and you're you on had the, enough amenities. Yeah, you can sit on the freeway. You can sit on the freeway at like eighty miles an hour, and you don't feel as though the things on its tiptoes about to like go off yeah. in a different direction. You know. So this is a reality in, or, or a fantasy in my head. How cool was it? How cool was the parking lot at Hot Wheels? Did people oh, drive their car? Did, I mean, you, you talked about the one gentleman that was designing. Like, to me, you're either going to drive by and you're not going to know what it is, or you're going to drive by and be like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like the Forza um, parking lot. Yeah. It, 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 had its, it, had its, it had its moments. Okay. Um, the, 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 the unfortunate thing was it wasn't just the Hot Wheels parking lot. It was the Mattel Design Center parking lot. So, oh. Um, like oh, you we, had Barbie people there. I get it. It's fine. We had, yeah, we had, we had Bob. We had everybody there, right? <laughs> okay. Masters, Masters of the Universe people turning up, right? Okay, it, I get that. That I mean, could be cool. You know, you show um, up on Battle Cat. I get that. So, <laughs> you know, it, there was always something interesting. Um, sure. The, most of most of the guys had an interesting project car that would fright. Like Fridays were generally when the parking lot got interesting, because Fridays was when everybody brought that brought that, that toy in for the weekend. I had a '63. Cadillac hearse on airbags, which, <laughs> oh, cool. which I, which I still think was the most outrageous car to ever park in the design center. And we actually parked it in the design center at one point. It was used, it was used by the monster high brand team for, to promote when they released monster high, which was a, a, a line of fashion dolls. Yeah. Were like based on model uh, on monsters. And so they asked me if they could borrow my hearse and park it in the park it in the foyer, <laughs> the building. Um, with Monster High stickers on it, which I was more than happy to oblige with. Um, but there was there was some good, there was some cool shit, man. Larry, you never knew what Larry was gonna. Larry's got this like Nash, I think it's a Nash, like a nineteen. It was a, it was a Hot Wheels model. It's in like a thirties, huge grit thing, like nineteen thirties 
convertible four door Nash with like a small block in it. A very like you know nineteen eighties like hot, old hot rod guy build. Yeah, where it's a resto car, but it's got a, a small block. Um, one of our paint vendors had uh, a fifty seven Chevy Nomad, but it had a it was a mid engined. Um, like mid, I can't remember if it was a big block Chevy or a Hemi, but it was like. It was a mid-engine. Mid-engine. Yeah, still Nomad, mid-engine, yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and then there was just a lot of very, very cool, like a lot of the lads had very, very cool JDM cars. And I'm not a big JDM fan. It never really, it just did, that wasn't, we didn't really have a lot of Japanese stuff when I was a kid in England. Um, but there was it's a lot take, of very It's nice taken stuff. off from Hot Wheels now because now you've got RWBs and, and, and wide-body Silva, Silvias and all kinds of stuff coming out in the Hot Wheels line. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and and it's a and it's a huge it's a huge global market, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was more than happy to let my lads like just take the reins on that. Like you know, they knew they came from that culture. I didn't come from that culture. Sure. I came from more of the kind of like European rally, hot hatch culture. They had co- they had grown up like I mean, Ryu grew up in Japan. June had grown up like driving Japanese cars with the Japanese heritage and 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 was obsessed with it. Um, and so those guys really led the charge with Hot Wheels. And, and those cars are relevant around the world, right? They're relevant in Europe, they're relevant in China, they're relevant in Brazil, they're relevant in, in, in the US. Um, yeah. And it's, 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 it's it, you know, it's, it's refreshing to see that. And I think that, I think that whether Hot Wheels tapped into a burgeoning culture or whether Hot Wheels helped drive a burgeoning culture, I, I noticed, I noticed when a lot of my friends who were into JDM cars and vintage BMWs and 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 um, and Porsches, and they were all very very hip guys in their thirties and forties. Um, suddenly, were like pinging me to say they'd found a certain model on the pegs and showing me their desks at their their cool like tech jobs or design jobs with just the specific Hot Wheels that meant things to them. I realized we were tapping into something new. There was a new generation that were looking at Hot Wheels very differently. So you know, I'm very proud of that. It's a long time ago now. It's not what I do now. But. I have Hot Wheels of all my cars. Like yeah. it just it's a thing that you do. Like you get a new car, you get the Hot Wheels to match. Like it's yeah. just yeah. cool. I don't I don't think I have found a, a 59 TR3 quite yet. I, I think it exists, <laughs> but we'll see. Um, but Matchbox made that one. I don't yeah. know. They, they tend to do more of the European ones. It's finding it was the problem because I've got to find it in British Racing Green. But right. yeah. it's on the list. Yeah, I was just it's on think, the list. I think so. that culture bleeds over. Like you can tell people are doing cool stuff in the car world when the when the company there also has the cool stuff. Yeah. Like they yeah. really do. Like if you look at the Forza parking lot, like there's a reason Forza, especially horizon motorsport as well, but like all those guys at Forza who are really into that stuff, yeah. even if they don't start out as car people, they're, they're car, car people. people. Yeah. And big time. Like I love going like you just, it's a car show. If you go to the parking lot of Forza here, yeah. at Redmond. like they do cool stuff. <laughs> sure. So, Tell That's me, some, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to ask you about the, uh, about a little more about the music stuff, actually. Um, so, cause that's been a theme in your whole life and are you still playing in a band now? And you play bass, right? Is that what I, I read? I play bass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I am. I'm, um, I, so first I start. I got into it. I got into it like when I was a teenager, really. Um, yeah. And I always, I like, I, I, I always had a bit of performance in me, right? I, I was a young kid when I was about like 11, I started going to a stage school on a Saturday morning with some friends. Um, and did that, I did, you know, kind of was in some fairly big, it was, it was at a major theater. So we were doing productions at like a real, like large opera house. So we do Bugs and Malone and Annie and all that stuff. And then around 14, I realized that I I wasn't really into that whole thespian scene or the whole kind of like pushy mothers and ballet dancing, you know, (laughs) um, and so I, and I, I had, you know, and my brother, my brother went on to star in a, in a, in a, in a, 
you know, a, a, a TV show for kids. And like I had other friends who got into some fairly big TV shows over the years fr from that. But I kind of like just got it. I, I always loved music. And uh, I got into it with, with some of my best friends at a time. We were skateboarders and we were into counterculture anyway. And kind of, you know, rock and roll seemed like a, a, a natural progression. And so I was in bands all the way from like being 15 um, all the way, it, you know, it took me, the reason I chose my university course was because I was in a band and, and we were getting into like NME and Melody Maker in the UK and I didn't want to walk away from the band to go to university. So I stuck with Newcastle and then started my work at, at Hot Wheels um, and had never thought about being in a band again, but had continued to play bass as a kind of unwinding thing in front of the TV. Um, and then lo and behold, my best friend who I've, who's been in every band I've been in um, rings me up and he said, he's in a new band and I've got to come and listen to them. They're fucking brilliant. And would I manage them? Because I was the only one who had a job. I was the only one who had a job. <laughs> so I must be good at managing something, right? And so I, 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 this is while I was at Hot Wheels. I went up there. They were brilliant. And I agreed to manage them. And then I was on a business trip to Los Angeles and they rang me up and said, at the start of the week, they rang me up and said they'd got onto like a BBC showcase live on radio one thing mm -hmm. and that was very exciting and then by the end of the week they'd split up <laughs> and, and i just like i remember sitting in the in the in the tower in el segundo and i was like just don't do anything till i get home don't don't gig let me get home i will drive straight to newcastle when i get back to leicester and so i did and i got up there and i say like, right what's the problem well the bass is left okay i'll play bass what's the next problem we need a singer let's find a singer and so I took a quick week off work and practiced with this band and found myself in a band again that was actually on a, on a Radio 1 stage. And then for the final year of my first stint with Mattel in the UK, um, we started just getting more and more kind of accolades. For the, we, we released a, a single and it was on Radio 1 every night. And um, the, the Mattel, closed the, Mattel closed the office down at the end of 99 and they offered me some management jobs in the US um, to come and work at head office. And I was like, I'm going to go be a rock star. And so I took my redundancy and ran back to Newcastle. And that was the start of five years, full-time rock and roll. Um, and, we, you know, we met all my heroes, played huge gigs, played huge festivals, did quite a few performances live on Radio 1, which was at the time, like, that's if you were on Radio 1, you were a very, very real band. Um, but, you know, for various reasons, the big deal never materialized. We were, like, the most talked about unsigned band in the UK for about three or four years. Um but the big deal, we didn't have a good, we didn't have a good management. We didn't, we were up in Newcastle, which was as far Weren't from any. you the management? <laughs> well, I, I had, I had, like, I had left management behind oh, because okay. I was, because I was in the band. Oh, right, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you can't do both. I got you. And okay. so I, so I kind of, so I road managed from inside the band, but we had sure. a manager who, who, who just like he, his business took off and he was too busy with his business and various things happened. And it just, it was one of those stories, but we were like, you know, First radio, first radio one made a veil session of the new millennium. Oasis played the second. We supported like we were on the same bill as the Foo Fighters at Reading and Leeds. We were like we did, you know, we did some big. We did we were low down the bill, but we did some big gigs. Like we were legit. Um, and then I, I and then I so I quit because I just I, I woke up about four years later, like very penniless but very happy, and realized I wasn't going to get where I wanted to be in life if I carried on that path. Moved out of the states in 2004 so like what 18 years ago nearly 19 years ago now um and didn't really think anything of it you know but over the years listened to a lot of the recordings we'd we'd made and realized they were really bloody good 
and kind of pulled together everything we'd done and then sent that back to my best mate Arlo in the UK who turned around in the pandemic and was like, yeah, we've got a really good album here. Let's release an album. And of course, the difference between then and now is you can self-publish an album and yeah. self-distribute an album. In 2004, you couldn't do that. iTunes was in its infancy. YouTube didn't exist, you know. And so we just released an album, like, and it's 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 you know it's called Demolition because it was really the story of a band that destroyed itself, and half of the album is demos. Uh, but I'm I'm very proud of it. It's a great, it's a it's a bloody good album. It's on iTunes and Spotify. The band was the custom built with a K. Um, I was about to ask, and, like, what is the name? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the custom built with a K, and uh, the album is called Demolition. And I fly home in March to play a gig. There was a big band from the UK called In Spiral Carpets. They were like a big, like late eighties, early nineties band. And they, Clint, who was the keyboard player in In Spiral Carpets, who's now quite a well-known radio DJ in the UK. He produced some of the tunes on the, on the album. And so when they saw that we'd released an album, we would, you know, through the grapevine, they were like, do you want to support us in Newcastle? <laughs> we, were like, <laughs> we were like, yep, let's do that. That's a good, like, you know, that's a good, like, what we would call in the UK a busman's holiday, right? When you go on holiday to work, but it's just a good laugh. And so, March, I fly home for a week of practice to go and play in front of a couple of thousand people supporting the Spiral Carpets, which is a nice thing to be able to do when you're in your 50s. I was going to yeah, say. Absolutely. You're still living the adventure, man. That sounds great. 100%, you know. And, it, and it's a good thing because it brings the lads back together. We're all good friends. We're all creative. And it's it, there's a lot of stuff. And it's the same in the car world, right? The thing that I've lost to quite a few friends over the past few years, and one of my buddies who's an actor had kind of like one of one of them hit us quite hard and he, he sent us a, he sent us all out a, um an article to say that men gen especially men need shared experiences to stay in touch as they get older it's why a lot of men end up kind of old and lonely is because you know it, uh, the occasional phone call or the occasional pint isn't enough you need to share experiences and i think a lot of people get that from the car community. You know, down here in LA, if you go up to Good Times Breakfast Club on a, on a Friday morning, you've got a lot of mates and you're sharing that experience of going on a, a driving adventure every Friday morning and hanging out socially. And I get the same thing from the band. You know, it's kept me in touch with childhood friends and we're all the same people. And you kind of, you know, you're in touch with your roots. You're doing something that's a bit scary. It's a bit scary standing on stage in front of 2,000 people who didn't pay to see you. Um, but it's a good laugh, you know. <laughs> as long as you're having fun. And now you're going to go yeah. play with Rockets. Yeah, I, I was joking about that with the lads. Actually, I always thought that I wanted to be a rocket, a rock star, but now I'm a rocket czar. Oh, okay. um, I like it. Which Buckets is, are. you know, maybe that's what I'm. Maybe that's what I got it wrong. I was never supposed to be a rock star. It's rockets that I'm actually supposed to be doing. Just a slight misspelling. You're good. Yeah, yeah, it happens. Nice. Yeah. What yeah. are you doing in the uh, rocket industry? Like, is it uh, uh, industrial design? Yeah, it's uh, kind of. It's um. So it, it it ties in with my time with Hackrod. There's a company here in California, Los Angeles, called Relativity Space, and they are 3D printing rockets. Oh. Um, they are a, they are a, you know, on paper they're a SpaceX contender, and I am working very closely with some SpaceX legends, some of the guys who, literally, some of the guys who built SpaceX, and the the plan is to develop technologies to 3D print these things to long term make them even more affordable and even more competitive in the market. And my skill set is I know how to take brilliant people and, and kind of organize them to build brilliant things. So I'm not a rocket scientist by any stretch. But what I do understand is, is innovation process and design process. And so 
More of a rocket organizer. Yeah. (laughs) Rocket organizer. Rocket organizer. Absolutely. Actually, well, Space Cadet is the joke, right? Oh, even better. (laughs) Okay. Space Cadet organizer. Um, Yeah. I'm a Space space Cadet. Fair. Um, I'm learning. I'm learning and learning fast, but I've got a lot to learn. But yeah, no, so I'm kind of leading, I guess, leading leading design application or leading applied design at Relativity Space and kind of helping them, helping them like, Put, in, put processes in place that will actually allow the technology to develop properly and teaching very, very experienced engineers in the old way of doing things, how to do things in the new way of 3D printing and how to think differently in that world. Absolutely awesome. Well, Felix, I really appreciate you taking time and, uh, out of your busy schedule and, and I mean, a, ma- matter of, a man of many talents, but uh, you know, it's, it's been great to obviously meet you when you were up here and I look forward to to meeting with you the next time we see each other, maybe down in LA, Dan and I get down there. Yep. Yeah. If you ever, if you're ever down here, hit me up. Yeah. Like, I love, I love to, I love to go, I love, I love to go for beer. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we're yeah. overdue and for getting down there. So we yeah. definitely will do that. And um, we're always yeah. overdue uh, for beer. So yeah. And, yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, and I can't, I can't wait. Like that, that, that trip was the first time I'd actually been up to Seattle and I absolutely loved it. You know, I, I um, and we've got, I think we've actually even maybe got some, a footprint in Seattle obviously with the aerospace connection. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back up north as well. Well, well then the offer goes you. the other way yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you're absolutely. ever up here, we'll gladly pay for the beer. So yeah. Excellent. Or whiskey or whatever you'd like. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to post this on, uh, let's see, it'll be next Monday, I think actually. And I will have links to your articles, to your website, to your Instagram. Of course, we'll share some of your art and some of the photos we've got from the Avance magazine. Um, Avance members, if you haven't seen that article, you definitely should. I will put a link to it though, because it's online. So you, yeah. you, if you don't have the magazine because you're lame, you can go read that. I'm just kidding. Yeah, don't be lame. Don't yeah. be lame. Be an <laughs> yeah. Avance member. Yeah. Get your magazine. It's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, love your work, love your stuff. Can't wait to see what you're coming up with next um, when you find all that free time from rockets and art. <laughs> whatever you, whatever version of rocking you're doing, yeah, yeah, rocketing, <laughs> rocket. rockets, yeah. Yes. rocking, rocking, yeah, all the above, project cars, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, excellent. No, it's been great. It's been great, lads. I've enjoyed this. You know, it's it's been a bit of a trip down memory lane for me. It's amazing what memories pop into my head as I'm talking. So it's all good. That's oh good. yeah. I feel like we'd have a lot more to talk about. Yeah. Over and a beer I mean, yeah, you, I so. know. So part two, part, part two. two. Absolutely. Exactly. We'll get you back on. Well, for this episode of the Avance podcast, as always, I'm Nick, I'm Dan. And don't just get there. Enjoy the drive. <laughs>